Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to another edition of the My Fit Podcast. This week on the show, I'm accompanied by Alex Hutchinson. Alex is a sports science journalist. He's the author of a best-selling book, Endure, which explores the science of endurance and the real limits of human performance, as well as a former competitive runner for the Canadian national team. Alex has devoted his professional life to researching and finding out why some athletes quit, why others can continue, as well as decipher how much of human performance is dictated by the mind versus the body. Alex's elite level background as a runner, as well as his experiences alongside some of the best runners in the world, have given him tremendous insight and knowledge in this area. And it's a topic that I'm super interested in. I think it's so fascinating to me why some people can push further, deeper into pain caves, and others just kind of shy away. I think coming from a CrossFit background, um, this is something that gets talked about a lot, uh, either at your gym or in inner circles or even on, on podcasts on why some people can just thrive really well in a pain-driven sport. And Alex comes from a running background, running. And if you've ever ran an 800 all out, a one mile all out, or even something like a 26.2 mile marathon, you know the pain and the uh, mental barriers that you have to go through. And so I think Alex is a perfect person to kind of parlay between uh, running and also CrossFit and how we as athletes can kind of come together and understand uh, human performance and what are the limitations and what are the perceived limitations that maybe we can kind of get over, if you will. Some of the topics we got into were first falling in love with endurance training. Obviously, Alex has devoted a majority of his life to endurance training and the research. So I was curious on where did that love come from? After that, we talked about a pivotal story in Alex's life where he stumbled upon a PR on a 1,500-meter run, which ended up catapulting his career and kind of turning him into the man that he is today. After that, we talked about his reflection upon the breaking two marathon record. We've talked about this a couple of times on the show where um, they set out, Nike set out basically billions of dollars to try to break the two hour marathon record. And um, funny enough, Alex was a part of that. He was a key component in the success of that uh, show. After that, we talked about understanding the central governor. This was kind of the science in a, in a big portion of his book. And I wanted to enlighten the listeners and kind of illuminate a little bit about what is the central governor? How can we understand that a little bit better? After that, we talked about how to use RPE to overcome mental barriers. Then we talked about the relationship that people have with pain and how it differs from person to person. Super interesting stuff. Um, something that I definitely took a lot of notes on. After that, we talked about the importance of your inner voice. And I think we t- when we talk about the differences between the mind and the body and how they play a role in optimal human performance, the inner voice is something you just can't skip over. I think it's super important. And Alex, as a, with a science background, just touches on the importance of having a solid inner voice. Then after that, we talked about at the at, we closed down talking about how thirst 
is oftentimes a perceived limit for people. They feel like they're dehydrated. In reality, they're probably not. They might just be thirsty, but you can actually perform at high levels while feeling thirsty. I mentioned a couple of times Alex's book. I really recommend if you guys enjoy hearing from him to go check out his book. You can get it on Barnes & Noble, Amazon. I put a link in the show notes for you to check it out. It's a really good read if you're interested in finding out how to push past perceived limits. If you guys enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a rating and review as that helps my show grow tremendously. I thank you all for the continued support. Crazy to think we're on episode 141 already. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun ride. Can't wait to continue to give you guys more great content. So without further ado, enjoy the show with Alex Hutchinson. Let's go. Alex Hutchinson, welcome to the MyFit Podcast, man. It's an honor to have you on the show. I just finished up your book, Endure, and it is phenomenal. I'm a part of a book club that's also reading it together. It's just been fun to uh, learn more about endurance and also learn more about you the last couple of weeks. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on the show, DJ. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, chatting and to, to learning about what you guys do too. Absolutely. Very cool. Endurance is something that is very top of mind for me. I love learning about the psychological types of things, how we can push people to their limits. And I think they're just, you know, there's very specific people that really have uh, spent time in the trenches and you're one of those people who have really brought out some lessons and kind of been able to share them with the layman and people that maybe they do CrossFit uh, one hour a day, but they're still trying to push. How can I push a little bit further? How can I get my body to do more than my mind wants to do? And I think before we kind of get into the the weeds, if you will, I think we need to set the table about you. Talk to us a little bit about how you fell in love with endurance and kind of what, where, or uh, how did you get into the point of writing Endure? Sure. Yeah. So, so my background is, is, I guess the key point of my background is that I'm a runner uh, and I, I ran competitively starting in high school and, and through college. And I ran uh, after college for about a decade. I competed on the, the Canadian national team as a, as a middle distance and cross country runner mostly and later did a little bit of mountain running. Um, and I still like I'm, I'm 45 now and I, I still run probably six days a week and compete when there's not, you know, pandemics canceling all the races and all that stuff. So, so running is really uh, core to who I am. Um, the, the parallel thing is that I, I studied, uh, physics actually in university and I worked as, in, in, as a scientist for, uh, until I was about 28. And then I decided it wasn't quite like the, the right fit for me. And, and I went back and did a, a degree in journalism starting when I was 28. And so I had a bit of a late start, but I, I, I started as, I was, I guess I was a freelance journalist by the time I worked at a newspaper for a bit, but then I was a freelance journalist starting in my early thirties. And really what I was interested in was, first of all, I had a science background. And second of all, I had a, a lifelong passion for, for running and more broadly for endurance sports. So I started writing about kind of the science of endurance. So writing about sports, not in the sense of like who won that race, but why did that person, you know, why did person A win and not person B? And what, why do I, you know, why do I finish every race feeling like, hey, I could have gone a little bit faster. Why didn't I go faster? And so I guess probably in the mid 2000 so like 2006 or 7 is when i really started to dig into this question of uh you know human limits what what is it that defines what you know when you feel like you've pushed as hard as you can what what is holding you back and and sorry not to not to sort of give you the the, the 20 minute answer but i guess that what i discovered at that point when i was writing magazine articles was that there was this sort of revolution going on at the time that was saying hey endurance isn't just about muscles and heart and lactic acid and things like that that to really understand you know who who wins and loses a race or, or how hard you can push yourself you have to think about the brain and that was really kind of new 
10, 15 years ago and has really overturned the study of endurance. And that's ended up what I've been covering as a journalist for the last decade or so. And then what led to, uh, it was really like a decade long journey to, to write the book. Uh, endurance. Mm-hmm. When you look back at your research and writing the book and all the prep time that came up to, I'm sure it was many years. When you look back, Alex, what are some things that, what were some of the best parts about writing this book or, or your time researching? What were some of the, you look back and you kind of smile when you think about? Yeah. I mean, it's probably a little bit of exaggeration to say that I wake up every morning smiling, thinking, hell, I I can't believe that I I ended up with this career where I get to to think about running all and and endurance all the time. But I I mean, I do, I'm, I'm super grateful. I've had a chance to, to, you know, go to some amazing track meets, talk to some of the best runners in the world, uh, talk to some of the best coaches and scientists. Probably the one that maybe it's just freshest in my mind, but it was certainly a big deal is, is there was this whole pursuit of a sub two hour marathon, uh, that started Nike started this project in late 2016 and they hosted this, this really elaborate breaking two race, uh, in 2017 where, uh, Ed Kipchoge, the world marathon record holder, he ran two flat uh, 25. So he missed two hours by 25 seconds. And two hours later, there was another project where he actually dipped under two hours. So that that whole project, in a sense, was kind of a bringing together of all the things that I was interested in, because they were saying that they were trying to understand what the limits, you know, how fast can a person run a marathon? And in order to, to, to sort of optimize that and bring, kind of shave off those last two minutes, they were they had this big team of scientists and coaches thinking very carefully about every aspect of what might limit your endurance from hydration to psychology to, you know, air resistance to the tech, you know, shoe technology. Um, and so I was lucky enough. I, at the time I was writing for runner's world and um, Nike for that initial sub two hour attempt, they, they asked runner's world and wired. So two magazines to come behind the scenes to sort of spend six months following the progress leading up to the first attempt. And so I was the reporter for running sports. So long answer, but yeah, in, in terms of like, what was pretty cool being able to hang out with like the best runners and scientists and coaches in the world for behind the scenes for a few months, I was like, wow, you know, things, things really panned out. I'm, I'm really, it's that, that, that did not feel like, uh, you know, going to work in the coal mines or anything like that. Yeah, that's that's so cool, man. And I love the the documentary on YouTube. They did such a phenomenal job filming and cutting that up. It's if you guys haven't checked that out, check it out on YouTube. It's free, um, and, and it's just mind blowing on everything that went into it. And so cool that you were you were a part of that. What what do you think when you look back, Alex? And I, a lot of it is is in the book. But what do you think is something that what's like a, a lesson learned from that time in your life? Yeah, you know, in some sense, the the sort of 10 years that I was working on the book was a journey for me from being like, everything has to be measurable and, uh, you know, science, it's technology, it's VO2 max to understanding the sort of more touchy feeling, touchy feely aspects of the role of the brain. I'm a very skeptical person. And so even though I would see evidence, it's like, you know, it's not just about VO2 max. I really had trouble believing it. And, And, you know, as an athlete, we had opportunities to use sports psychologists and I didn't, I was like, I, I don't need that stuff. That stuff's not important. So breaking to the, the sub two hour marathon for me, and in some sense, that was the sort of final thing that, that pushed me over was seeing how Elliot Kipchoge, who that again, the greatest marathoner, probably the greatest marathoner in history. I think most people would say right now. Um, yeah, he was, he benefited from all this technology. He benefited from the pacing, from the issues and all that. 
But what made him different from everybody else was his his mental approach. And I just, you know, one of the things I remember most vividly is the first time I met him. It was about six months before the the first attempt on breaking uh, to break two. And he had just run a half marathon that was, you know, 59 something, so a little bit under an hour. And I, so I was like, Elliot, how are you going to be able to run twice as far at the same pace as you just raced? Like, what changes are you going to make in your training to be able to go twice as far? And his answer was like, oh, we're not going to change the training. This training doesn't matter. What's going to change is my mind. I'm, you know, yeah. and, and I was like, that's such a, t-, you know, in my head, I didn't say this out loud, but in my head, <laughs> that's the worst plan I've ever heard. You know, you, 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 you're going to run sub two hours because you're going to start believing in it. But he was absolutely committed to that on an intuitive level. You know, he was, he, his, the books he would read would be, you know, motivational books, mm-hmm. building this belief that he could do it when everyone else believed that it was impossible. And I think, you know, sometimes when you're writing, when you're writing about science in this area, it's like you, you, people will say, well, that's not new. Like so-and-so such and such a great athlete all, always knew that. And, and I think that's all often true to some extent. Some of the things that sports scientists discover, it's like, yeah, the great champions have always intuited how to, and the great coaches too. I think great coaches have always, a lot of the stuff we, that we may end up talking about, about, you know, self-belief and motivation. Great coaches have always been working on that. But the thing is, not everyone does. I, I know I didn't. And so it's, it's understanding how these things that maybe the, the all-time greats intuit, how we can apply those more broadly and understand how to generalize. Anyway, so yeah, breaking to seeing Elliot Kipchoge under, and, and the importance he placed on me- mental preparation was maybe the final thing that was like, I, okay, I need to write about this seriously and not, I'm not sort of always have my fingers crossed behind my back saying, sure, you should work on your, your positive self-talk or whatever. Yeah. Oh man, super cool. I could only imagine how cool that would be to be, you know, side by side and working along that. That's, that's awesome, man. Um, you also had a big pivotal moment in your life and it's, you talk about in the book when you were running uh, your race and then your timer, your friend ended up telling you some incorrect times that ended up helping you. And I think this kind of also, you know, uh, slingshotted you into becoming a little bit more in tune with the mental side of things for the listeners that haven't yet read the book. One, go read this book because it's phenomenal. But two, can you talk a little bit about that story and why that was such a pivotal pivotal moment in your life? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's really what I think launched me on my career and certainly launched the book. This, so this is a race I ran way back in 1996. Um, my, at the time, my, my entire goal in life was to break four minutes for 1,500 meters. And 1,500 meters, for, you know, those of, those of you in the non-metric parts of the world, um, is a little bit shorter than a mile. So it's like a poor man's four-minute mile barrier. And, and, you know, four minutes has a lot of kind of mystical re- resonance for runners. It's a special number. And I ran 402 in uh, grade 11. And I assumed it would be pretty, you know, at that point, when you're a kid, you're, you're getting faster every year. And I thought, you know, break force can be easy. But it, but it wasn't. I hit a plateau and I, I ran 401 or 402 for four straight years. So by the time I was a junior in college, my, my feeling was that I was kind of knocking up against my ultimate physical limits. That on a good day with the tailwind, I would run 359, but that would probably be about it because I'd been training pretty hard for four years. And the race where it finally happened was this totally meaningless race at an indoor track with no, no you know, not even any competition. And what happens, I went through the first lap and the timekeeper who calls out your splits every lap, he, it was a 200 meter track and he called out 27 seconds. And 27 seconds for 200 is actually really fast. It's way too, way too fast for a, 
uh, four minute fifteen hundred. And so I had this sort of um, this split reaction. Half of me was like panicking, like, "Oh man, I've set myself up for either yeah. you know, came out too hot." <laughs> yeah, and it's you know, there's going to be a world of hurt in the next in the last half of this race because I've gone out way too fast. But the other half of me is like, oh, I actually feel surprisingly good. Um, you know, I feel okay. And, and the second lap, same thing. I came through 57 seconds. That's way too fast, but I feel actually like I can sustain this. And after the third lap, same thing. I, I, I had this sort of decision point. It's like, do I keep obsessing about my splits and worrying and thinking I should slow down because it's way too fast? Or do I just stop listening to the splits and, and just run and just go for it? And, and fortunately, I, I, I chose option B. And I, you know, I put my head down ran as hard as I could. And I crossed the finish line in 352.4, which was a nine second personal best after four years of running basically the same times over and over again. And as, as you sort of mentioned that the, uh, the, the, the explanation was, you know, I was talking to one of my teammates after who'd taken my splits for me so I could put him in my training log. And I was like, can, can you believe that I went out in 27? That's just wild. And he was like, what are you talking about? You didn't go in 27. Your first lap was like 30 or 31. Um, and same with the second lap. So the, the timekeeper had, probably missed the start or something had gone wrong with the guy who was given the splits. And he basically tricked me into having like the, literally the greatest day of my life. Mm. And, and the, the, what's really interesting is that I think is the, I mean, that's interesting, but the postscript is that I, after that, you know, I, I didn't just switch back and then go back to trying to break four minutes again. In fact, in my next race, I ran 349. And in the race after that, I ran 344 and qualified for, for that summer's Olympic trials. And so I had this, you know, like cl clearly my training must have been going well that spring. Like people are uh, always ask, like, you know, surely there was something else. Obviously I was, you know, my training came together, but there was a clear like night and day. I had this one race and it unlocked this huge potential. And it meant that I could never after that sort of accept, I could never finish a race and say to myself, I guess that's the fastest I could go. Because I'd been feeling that for four years. I'd been running races and finished, crossed my finish line saying I went as hard as I could and I ran 401. And then all of a sudden I was running 344 over, over the course of a matter of weeks. And so to me, it, it was clear then that, there, that, you, that you have to factor in the brain and you have to try and understand how do you unlock that? How do you know when you're holding it back, holding a reserve back without realizing it? And that's, you know, I wouldn't say that I woke up the next morning. It's like, I'm going to be a journalist. But, uh, you know, over time, as I drifted into this area, and I, of, of, of research, I look back and it's like, I think that race really did, um, kind of set me on this trajectory. Mm -hmm. What I also, also think is interesting about that story is in you and I talk a lot about the brain and the body, but the part that was, that unlocked you on this was actually almost somebody else's um accountability if you will or their motivation and how that plays a huge role too that's not even your brain that's somebody else being able to push you talk to me a little bit about how kind of outside sources uh can help you become a better athlete a better runner even though you know the majority of this conversation will be about your brain and your body yeah that's a it's a really interesting question and one i've sort of thought about a lot because the question is how do you how do you bottle that right like how do you how do you take advantage of this and there's the, uh, one of my former colleagues, a guy named Am Amby Burfoot, was, was the Boston Marathon champion back in 1968 and then was longtime editor of Runner's World, really thoughtful guy. He once wrote a, a column where he said, look, the single best workout you can ever do as a runner, the, the most powerful workout you can ever do is five by a mile, you know, with two minutes break, as hard as you can. And when you finish the fifth one and you're lying on the track, seeing stars and, you know, you've given everything you can, your coach comes over to you and says, okay, one more. And you say, no, 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 I did five. You said five. I did five. That's all I got. And the coach says, no, yeah, I understand that. But just go, go do one more. 
who knows what the pace will be, but just give it your all. And you go and do one more and you discover that you can actually do the sixth one in the same pace that you did as the fifth one. And from that, you know, in Ambie's words were like, from that you discover you can do more than you thought you were capable of, and that's a lesson that will stick with you. And I think that that's absolutely true. That's like a super, super powerful lesson. And, and the funny thing is stories like that recur all over the place. There's like a famous running novel called Once a Runner, where there's a, a workout like that. And I was one of the, probably the most influential scientists in this field who, who proposed, who, who started to think about the role of the brain in endurance. I was asking him, like, when did you start thinking about this? And he told a story about he was a rower before he was a runner back in like 1971. His coach did exactly that to them, made them do an extra interval. And it's like, the problem is, you know, so you think, okay, now I have the secret. Here's how you unlock your potential. The problem is, if your coach does that to you once a week, you, 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 you start just holding back on a matter, even if your coach does it to you once a month or even once a season. So it's not something that you can just sort of put into a formula and say, here's how you unlock potential. You have to have, a, one thing you have to have is trust the person, the person outside you. You have to trust them. Because if you, like I trusted the guy giving splits because he, there's no reason not to, to assume that he's giving me the right splits. In a coach-athlete relationship, you have to trust the, what the coach says, even if the coach then sometimes, you know, it's, it sort of tricks you or, or tries to find ways of pushing you. So I, I think it's very hard to do that by yourself, right? Like, I, and I, I, I believe me, I try to do it by myself all the time. Like when I'm doing workouts and I'm not feeling like doing it i'll say you know alex look maybe you don't want to go out for a run on this day but all you have to do is go out and get 15 you know you need some fresh air anyway like go out and jog for 15 minutes and i kind of secretly know that once i get out there i will go for more than 15 minutes uh, or once i you know i'll say do you know do five reps that's all you just need to turn over your legs and then once i've done five i'll, I'll go all right all right i'll do 10 and uh, but that 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 level of self-deception could never be as powerful as working with someone else so i think that's a to me, one of the most powerful arguments for, for it's not like okay, co- lots of coaches know lots of things and they can program workouts well. But to me, the most powerful benefit working with someone else can do is that you can put your trust in them and they can help you unlock things that you wouldn't be able to unlock by yourself. I agree. I think the, there's so much value and we, we're, we're going to get into some things about how we can kind of increase our mental toughness, if you will. But I think one of the main hang, lowest hanging fruits is just surround yourself with people that are better than you as well and be able to train alongside some of the best. I think th- those are just some easy things. You know, you talk about Kipchoge and some of the, the uh, parts that were in that YouTube video. He's not running with people that are slow, man. He's running with people that are going to push him and hold him accountable. I think uh, something very simple yet profound for people just to remember that if you're and, and if you're struggling training alone, find yourself some people that you can train with and see your level slowly rise. Yeah. And I would add to that, that, that it doesn't have to be that the people are always better than you too. It's, I mean, you get a training group, you, you get it, you get a whole bunch of benefits rolled into one. I mean, for one thing, you get accountability. If you agree to meet someone at 6am on a mm-hmm. Tuesday morning and you don't show up, then, you know, <laughs> that's bad. So you, you, you get accountability, but also even like I sometimes train people who are slower than me, but I can still judge how I'm doing relative to them. And I know that if they're, even if they're still behind me, if, if they're, if I can hear their breathing, it's like, Alex, you're probably slacking off, you know? Yep. So, I mean, it's great to have people to chase. It's great to have people to chase you. Uh, it's just great to be working with other people. And there's a lot of, you know, we, th- there's some interesting research on the way your brain responds to feeling like part of a group or part of a team. There's mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, 
your pain tolerance will be higher um, if you're doing a certain workout with your teammates around you than if you do exactly the same workout by yourself. And it's not just a sense of competition. It's not just that you want to beat your teammates. It's you know, you, you know this, the people who study this stuff, they're like evolutionary anthropologists. They're trying to understand the origin of cooperation and collective behavior and dancing and things like that. And it's like, yeah, we're wired to move together and to feel like we can endure more when we're doing it with other people. Mm-hmm. And in, the, in like a basic premise, that's CrossFit, Alex. That's when you go to a CrossFit gym, you're expecting to do this really hard workout with 14, 15 other people in your class. And it's something that when you're done, you're like, there's no way I could have done that by myself or would I have wanted to do that by myself? So I think there's a, there's just a lot of correlation back, back and forth there. So very cool. I, I want to get into some of the book topics. And one of the major uh, topics of the book that you write extensively about is the central governor. And I think in order for us to even move further in this conversation, we need to have a discussion and kind of teach the listeners about what that means. So for probably the 1,000th time, can you talk to uh, the listeners about what a central governor is? Sure. So the, the, the central governor is an idea that was proposed in the late 90s by, by a scientist from South Africa named Tim Noakes, who's the guy I was mentioning earlier who, who, did, who had that epiphany during a wrong workout in the 70s. In a nutshell, what the central governor says is that it's not that we don't have physical limits, it's that we never reach our body's true physical limits. And the reason we don't is that our brains hold us back for our own self-protection. Basically, you know, if I step outside right now and say, I'm going to run myself unconscious, I won't be able to. I will end up too tired before I can actually keel over from unconsciousness. Uh, now, and, 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 you know, we can get into why that is, but basically you can think evolutionarily like a million years ago, your ancestors were chasing uh, an antelope, you know, across the savanna. The guy who was willing to keep chasing it till he keeled over, literally, did not make it back to the campfire that night, and did, you know, did not pass on his genes. Now, the central governor itself, Tim Noakes, had some ideas about how this works. Like that when your brains detect danger, it, you know, it reduces the the nerve signals to the muscles, things like that. The the, the probably the most honest answer right now is that. Nobody really knows exactly how it works. And a lot of people would say, oh, there's no central governor. It's just that we respond to, you know, the conscious perception of effort that, that we, that when it, we have that we're wired to feel effort and when the effort gets too hard, we stop. Ultimately, the, the truth is no, nobody really knows exactly how this idea works, but I think most scientists would now agree that there is some mechanism, call it a central governor or call it whatever you want, that, uh, that basically in almost all cases, prevents us from reaching our true physical limits, which in most cases would mean that you keel over and die. It's like, then you know you gave it your all, but you don't want to reach that, and, and most of us can't unless something goes seriously wrong. Mm-hmm. And it, a lot of it comes back to the brain and kind of the idea that, you know, what you're telling yourself, I, I coach CrossFit classes, like I said before. And so a lot of our workouts are being able to push yourself to the full limit. And there's a lot of times where after a workout, um, somebody will kind of fall on the floor and say, man, I couldn't have done one more. And I'm thinking to myself, Alex, I'm like, you're talking to me, telling me this, that you can't do one more. If you're, ha- if we're having a conversation right now, I don't think you're at your full potential limit. And I'm not asking them to do that. And for their goals, that's probably not necessary. So I just want to get that out of the way. But I think there's this common knowledge of uh, the brain stopping you because you really haven't ever done it before. So tell me a little bit about how experience plays a huge role in being able to kind of push yourself a little bit further. Yeah, for sure. But first, let me just pick up your story with just yeah. one of Tim Noakes's uh, things that he used to say in his talks along the same lines. He would put up a picture 
from just after the finish of the 1996 Olympic marathon, which was won by a South African runner. And there was a South Korean runner who finished, I think, three seconds behind. And the picture is of the two of them jogging around the track, waving their flags. And, you know, what notes say, what do you notice about these two guys? They're not dead. Like, the guy in second, he just was sprinting down, sprinting the last lap of the marathon, three seconds behind immortality. Like, I remember, Josiah Fagwani is the guy who won. I don't remember, even remember the name of the guy who came second. Because mm. the Olympic gold is immortality. If there's anyone who was ever going to sprint as hard as a human could possibly sprint, it's this guy after 26 miles who knows that if he could just go a few seconds faster, he's going to win the Olympics. He didn't win the Olympics. He crosses the line. What's he do? He keeps running. He picks up a flag and jogs around the track. So he wasn't dead. His legs were still moving. He was still breathing. He had more energy. But at that moment, that was all that his brain felt safe in un unleashing. And so, okay, so that's the story. I like the story. Mm -hmm. To answer your question, the role of experience, it's crucial. It's crucial. I mean, I, I think an analogy that I, that I think is, is a useful one is, is if you take someone who's never run before and let's say they want to do a couch to 5K program, they're, they're going to run, they, their friends are running a 5K in three months or whatever they want to run. So they, they start by running one minute at a time. They progress. They're running 10 minutes and soon they run the 5K after three months. We, we know perfectly well that a bunch of physical changes has ha have happened, that, you know, their heart is stronger and their muscles are more efficient and, and they've probably lost some weight, yada, yada, yada. These physical changes are obvious. What people don't realize is that there's also a bunch of mental changes going on. Just the question, it's, it's like they're, they're, there's a candle flame the first time and they're, they're putting their finger close to the flame and go, oh, that was close. You know, I can't. Then they realize, oh, I, actually, I can hold my finger. Then it's not even that hot. Okay. I can move it a little closer. I can hold it a little longer. And so you, they're basically willing to, you know, in those first few weeks, it's like they feel that sensation of they're out of breath and their legs are burning. And they process that as I'm dying. I need to stop. You know, I want to, I want to see my wife and kids again. Um, over time, they realize, well, okay, I tolerated that level of discomfort for 10 seconds and nothing happened. So next time they tolerate it for 15 seconds and sooner or soon, they're not just fitter, but they're also going into that zone of discomfort. And, and it's with familiarity, it's become they're like, oh, this is no problem. And, and the, the gradual transition is that you start to experience that discomfort, not as like something to be afraid of, but just as information. You're just aware. This is telling me that I can't maintain this pace indefinitely. It's not telling me I have to stop right now. It's telling me that if I try and keep running at this pace, I, I will eventually have to stop because I'm breathing too hard and my legs are getting too heavy. And there's a whole bunch of studies that have, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of telling this as a story, but there are lots of studies that have validated this empirically, where you look at, for example, one of the classic studies is from a study of Scottish swimmers back in the 80s, where they compared elite national team swimmers to good club level swimmers to just like people splashing around at the local pool. And they did tests of pain tolerance uh, and not directly related to swimming. It's like the, the the, the test they used was like you put a blood pressure cuff around your arm, cut off all the circulation, then you have to do a bunch of uh, hand squeezes. And it, that becomes very painful because there's no blood coming to your hands. And the, the elite swimmers were able to tolerate like twice as many of these uh, painful contractions as the, as the non-swimmers and the club level swimmers were somewhere in the middle. And even more interesting, if when they tested the elite swimmers over time, their pain tolerance was highest when they were in their competitive season and lowest when they were in their off season and sort of somewhere in the middle. So it's, it's, it's not even something that you learn once 
or that you're born with that you're just oh some people are just tougher than others it's like when you're training when you're in heavy training and doing hard training that requires tolerating discomfort on a regular basis uh you be you you develop psychological tactics of dealing with discomfort it's not and it's not that your nerve endings get dulled or whatever it's that you're you're used to pushing through discomfort you know how to distract yourself to reframe it to as i said before to consider it as information rather than a panic signal and and so this is why i think it, there's like so much applicability to to you know life in general of doing challenging physical activity is that you learn to tolerate discomfort with, with experience simply it's like there, there's no no sort of secret mental trick to learning it it's like you get out there and do the workouts you're going to get better at tolerating discomfort and to me it's almost like the imagery of if we call it mental toughness, I know some people don't like the word, some people do, but if just for this case, we call it being becoming more mentally tough. To me, it's almost like a muscle. And the more times we can put stress on that muscle, just like a bicep curl, the bigger it's going to grow. So in essence, the more times we can put ourselves in these situations that push our, um, you know, our RPE a little bit further, that's going to end up growing and kind of accumulating compounding over time, just like we would if we were doing bicep curls. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's true. And I think that's, you, you know, like, if you just say athletes are tougher than non-athletes, then you don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, whether it's tough people. But when you look at some of this data, it's like, oh yeah, even in athletes, their toughness goes up and down depending on how they're training. It's like, it's clear that, like I said, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a muscle and it's one that gets better, but it also gets worse if you, if you neglect it. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, Alex, why are, what, what are some of the reasons why people stop? So something that's uh, pretty prevalent in our world is the assault bike. And it, for those that are listening, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, it's a machine that can really bring out a lot of lactic acid, a lot of pain, especially if you're going really hard on it. And there's also, there's always a point where somebody wants to stop and then there's a point where they end up stopping. What are some other reasons why people just have to stop in a workout? What are some of the brain signals? What are some things that are maybe tricking us into something that maybe we don't really have to do? Cause we're talking about our body can push a lot further than our brains do. So wh what's, what's stopping us? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me answer it in a circuitous way. Um, first of all, you might say, okay, there's going to be some physiological signal that maxes out that I've, I have reached my maximum somewhere. And so you might think, well, I guess my heart rate was maxed out. That's not the case. You can, you can, if you, if you put people on the bike at, uh, on a bike at sort of a high power level versus a low power level, in both cases, they'll eventually reach their failure, but their heart rates will be very different. Same with lactate uh, or lactic acid, you know, um, or body temperature or, you know, in each, for, you, you can come up with any number or, or like your or muscle fatigue or whatever. You can come up with all sorts of things that should contribute to, to failure, but none of them are, are consistently maxed out at the point where you give up. So you can never say that the point where you give up, that will be the point where your heart rate is highest or, or whatever. And so then you may say, well, maybe it's just really painful. Um, and, and it turns out that it is painful to, to, to be on in, in one of these situations. But pain isn't really what maxes out. And in fact, there have been some studies that test that. That's like, okay, we're going to do, we're going to help you figure out what pain feels like. So they, and one way to do that is with ice water. Dip your hand in ice water, rate your, rate your, your pain on a scale from one to 10 as time goes on. And what they find is that when the pain gets to like nine and a half out of 10 or whatever, that's when people pull out because it's maxing out the pain. And then they say, okay, now get on the bike, see how long you can stay on the bike. And we'll see when you quit and rate your pain. And what they find is people will quit when the pain is about six out of 10. And six out of 10 is painful. Like no, nobody enjoys six out of 10 pain, 
but it's not maxed out. People don't right. get off the bike, and bike, especially motivated athletes. If if you're like, if you're a motivated athlete, you're like, I don't care. You can saw off my arm. I just want to keep going. But people quit. But they quit anyway. Like you no know And as a runner, same thing. I'd be like, I. It doesn't matter how much it hurts. Like the the outcome is so important to me that I'm going to push through it. But somehow you you're just still never able to uh, keep going. And so the one variable that is consistently maxed out at the point where people give or close to maxed out at the point where people give out is their subjective sense of perceived exertion so you've mentioned a couple of times rpe which is short for rating of perceived effort or rating of perceived exertion and there are different ways of quantifying this you can do a, a rating of effort on a scale of uh one to ten where one is lying on the sofa and ten is falling off the bike you can do it from six to twenty that's a historical artifact the point is, it's a number you pick out of your head. And so for someone like me, I, I, I struggle with this because it's like, that can't have meaning because you're just you, you're just telling me to pick a number between one and 10. Like, I don't know what 10 is. So you have to anchor it. You have to say, look, 10 is where you can't do anything else. One is nothing. Six is like comfortably hard or whatever. And the point is, is that effort or RPE isn't just something by itself. It is your brain's way of integrating all the signals that are coming in. So it's, it's integrating your body temperature. It's integrating your lactate levels. It's integrating your heart rate and your muscle fatigue. But what's really interesting and important is that it's also integrating how you feel. Are you motivated? Are, do you like this exercise? Are there people around you? Did you sleep well last night? Are you under stress? And so all these things combine into this one very sophisticated calculation where you say, yeah, right now I'm going at about eight out of 10, or right now I'm you know, it might be the same physical effort. One day you're saying, this is eight out of 10, I can keep going. The next day or a different day because, you know, you just broke up with your girlfriend. Like this is nine out of 10 or nine and a half out of 10 and I need to stop. And so that's fundamentally, at least as far as I can tell from the science, that is what why you quit. But that's also why the point where you quit is not set in stone because it's not just a formula that incorporates physiological variables like heart rate. It incorporates... Uh, all these subjective things. And even like one of the studies that I, I'm really fond of is, is uh, one where they have people on a bike, biking to exhaustion, and they're flashing pictures of either a smiling face or a frowning face on the wall in front of them. Uh, and the pictures are just flashed up for like 16 milliseconds at a time. So less than a blink. So you don't even realize you're seeing the pictures. They're, they're, they're only perceptible to your unconscious mind. But when, when cyclists are shown the, the smiling faces, they last 12% longer than the, the frowning faces. And the point isn't that smiling faces somehow lower your heart rate. It's that it just changes your answer to that question of like, can I keep going for another five seconds? You're just, for, for reasons you're not even aware of, you're feeling a little bit more positive because, you you know, there's this smiley face in front of you. And you're like, yeah, okay, I can keep going for another few seconds. And you end up with a measurable difference. Yeah, the quote that pops out from your book that I wrote down was, you judge what's sustainable based not only on how you feel, but on how that feeling compares to how you expected to feel at that point in the race. And that kind of brought me back. I used to have a teammate and roommate who it was kind of annoying because every time I would bring up a workout or an idea, every time religiously, he would say, oh, that's easy. Oh, that's easy. And it would bug the hell out of me because he was very elite. And it was just like, I hate that you keep saying that this is easy. But now when I look back at Alex and I read your book, I'm like, man, maybe Nate was on to something because maybe there's something about underplaying kind of the idea or the pain that is to, is to come. Talk to us a little bit about how can 
downplaying things play a role if 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 at all and also how uh you know somebody would say okay well if that's if rpe is something we want to use why not just say everything feels like a four out of ten yeah so two things first of all i think there's a sweet spot right like i know what a common phenomenon for runners is like let's say it's not the big meat it's the small meat and the competition isn't that good and you're like but your team has to go to this meet and you're like ah no problem it be easy. I can I can beat these clowns. Um, in, in invariably, you get to halfway through the race. You know, this is way harder than I expected it to be. Because the truth is, it's like maybe you're better than everyone else there, but to beat them, you you still have to be at like ninety nine point seven percent. And and you've been thinking that you could go eighty percent, and all of a sudden, and then you it feels super hard. And then you're like, you finish the race, and you're like, oh man, something's wrong. I had to go so hard to beat these guys who I should. So you. But 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 the, conver- the the reverse, as you said, is all is definitely always true. If you expect that everything can be miserable and super hard, and it's like I don't think I can do this, man, you're it's a it's it's the classic self fulfilling prophecy, right? Because then you get into it, and sure enough, it is hard. Then you're like, well, yeah, I didn't think I'd be able to do this, and so you you ha- you've given yourself an out. You've given yourself a reason. I'm going to stop that later. I'm going to back off a little bit. So I think that's um, that that how you frame it is really important. And I also think it's worth saying that different people probably thrive from different approaches um and every time i talk about the you know the importance of you know positive thinking and self-belief i'll I'll hear from people who are like personally uh, you know i do best when i'm angry or you know when i'm mad or feel disrespected and it's like yeah look i i i I respect your whatever people have to figure out what pushes their own buttons but the, the most important thing is to understand that how one way or another, how you're framing it is is going to affect how you experience it and how you uh, and, and ultimately can push you forward or hold you back. And, and what works for you may not be the same as 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 your friend or whatever, but um, you can't just ignore or you shouldn't just ignore this idea of like, yeah, my expectations matter. And in terms of just saying like, um, yeah, everything's four out of ten, everything's easy. You, you can only lie to yourself so far, like. If, you know, if I'm like trying to pull a monster truck or something like that, and I'm telling myself, this is really easy. I mean, the monster truck isn't moving. So it's like, I can say it's easy as much as I want, but ultimately the question is, am I, am I doing what I set out to do? And, and realistically, I am going to have, if I'm honest with myself, I'm going to have a sensation of effort. Now, I think, I mean, if you always underreport by a half, does that, like, if you're always like, yeah, this is seven and a half when really you feel eight. I mean, I think there's something to be said for honesty, but I also think it, that's certainly better than overreporting and catastrophizing. Sure. And sure. and and if you look at, there's some really interesting research on like uh, pain management or uh, pain response techniques that looks at, for example, in, in ultra runners, they say, okay, when something hurts, how do you how do you respond? How do you handle yeah, it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are some approaches they they talk about as uh, adaptive, like good strategies versus bad ones. And, and the people who, if you can get a score from zero to six on how, how adaptive your approaches are. And for every one unit, I can't remember the exact numbers, but for the, the, the closer you are, the, the more you use the good pain strategies, it's like your, your chance of finishing this ultra race goes up by, by X percent. Like it really matters how you not, and that's independent of how much pain you're in. It's it, it, what matters is how you respond to the pain. And one of the worst 
methods of responding to pain is pain catastrophizing. So when you, you feel something and you're like, well, if I'm feeling this now, it's probably going to be worse than five miles. And if it's worse than five miles, that probably means it's something like structural. I've probably broken a bone. And if I've broken a bone, I may not be able to walk by the end of this. I'm going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my, you know, it's like you, you get this whole, like, you're just from step to step, all of a sudden, just because you have a hangnail, you're like, oh my God, I'm never going to walk again. And so you don't do as well. Whereas the, the people who have adaptive pain strategies and some of them, the adaptive ones are very simple. It's like distractions. It's like this hurts. Oh, well, I'm going to think about, you know, the episode of TV I watched last night and, and others, it's like the sort of mindfulness approach of non-judgmental self-awareness of like, I feel this, I take it as information and, you know, but I'm not like panicking about it. Anyway, that sort of rambled off the point there, but yeah, I, I think, it's important to be, I, I think it's helpful to be aware of the signals in, in your body, not to deny them, not to pretend that nothing hurts or that nothing is hard, but especially not, it's, it's, if, if you're erring on the side of un, underestimating or overestimating how hard it is, it's probably better to underestimate. Yeah, it's such a great skill. I like the way you uh, define that mindfulness, being aware of it and also accepting it, but then also being able to still kick ass, if you will. There's, you know, there, those are two different things. I think that's a skill that probably just like a muscle that takes time is to recognize, like, oh, my calves are burning up on these double unders, but it, that's okay. It's not, it's not, it's not limiting me to stop. I can still keep moving. Kind of some of that self talk. I think super important when, when, when we're kind of just building on this a little bit more, Alex, what are some other ways that people can improve their RPE? Yeah. I mean, so we've touched on a couple of important ones, like the presence of teammates. I think I've sort of alluded to this, but, but I want to sort of say it more clearly. Uh, your internal monologue is really important. Uh, and so there's different sort of names for this, but motivational self-talk is, is, is the way sports psychologists would, would describe it. And so, and, and we always, all of us have internal monologues and we don't necessarily pay attention to them, but if you were to tune into, let's say a marathon or halfway through the race, or I imagine a, a crossfitter halfway through one of your workouts, you'd probably hear a lot of messages like, this is so, so hard. Why did I sign up for this? I can't do this. I know I'm not cut out for this. You know, I should, you know, I could be on the beach or whatever. And, and that really is the, the mental equivalent of, of having those frowning faces flashing on the screen in front of you. It's not like changing your, your heart rate, but it's, it's just making you more likely to, to when push comes to shove and, and when you're, when you're asked that question, can I keep going for another, you know, to more say, no, I can't. And so changing that is, is it's possible and it's not, rocket science but it's not something you can do necessarily on the spur of the moment going back to something you were just saying about accepting how things feel i think there's quite a bit of evidence that it's counterproductive to just kind of deny reality to let's say your calves are burning to say la 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 my calves feel fine i don't feel anything because the objective truth is that your calves don't feel fine that they're hurting and so you have to be able to accept that and you want to you you want to have thought carefully in advance. What am I going to say to myself at that point when my calves start burning? Because the the sort of the, the knee jerk response may be, "Oh man, my calves are shot. I'm going to have to stop in a couple reps or whatever." But if you've if you've thought about it and if you've practiced it, you know, through workout after workout, to say when my calves start burning, I'm going to tell myself, "This means the training is working. I'm getting stronger." You know. To have some other, not a, not, a, not a response that denies reality, not to say, I feel great, but to say, yeah, this is what it's supposed to feel like. Yeah. I'm doing the right thing and mm -hmm. I'm, I've 
prepared for this so that I can do this. And if you do that systematically over a long period of time, those responses become automatic. And so you're giving yourself the positive message rather than the, the negative one. But I think a lot, a lot of people, you know, I know probably me included, a lot of people make the assumption that it's like, oh, in the heat of the moment, I'll be able to have that conversation with myself and talk myself out of it. And it's not, it has to be automatic because in the heat of the moment, you're too busy doing whatever it is you're doing to have a sort of, you know, a mental therapy session with yourself. Yeah, that's a very proactive approach. I think that's that's awesome, man. I, I want to talk a little more about pain because CrossFit in, in a lot of senses is an endurance sport and it's and it is a pain sport. And I think it's very interesting as a coach. I get to kind of sit back and watch a lot of things and observe a lot of people, whether it's um, kind of your just everyday mom and dad or some of the people that are at the highest level. It's interesting to me, Alex, how pain uh, people see pain differently and they deal with pain differently. And some people can really push. I think there's a, there's an interesting quote out there. I think it's from, from the Navy SEALs. It just says, you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to the level of your training. First, I want to hear, do you think that's true? Do people sink to the level? And it, and it just comes back to the people that, um, are better. They can better cope with pain. They're just doing it more often. And that's why, Talk to me a little bit about, I know it's a lot of just information. Talk to me a little bit about pain and why it's so different. People see it so differently and feel it so differently. And some people are just really freaking good at being in pain. Yeah, I, I, I think it is important and honest to acknowledge that, you know, there are some people are naturally good at it. Some people like we could talk for three hours about, you know, various techniques you could use to try and enhance your pain tolerance, there, there's going to be some guy who shows up who's never thought about it, who's never, you know, there's, there's probably a 12-year-old who, who, who is just a naturally gifted athlete or whatever, or gifted, you know, is gifted psychologically, who already intuits all this stuff. So it's, I, I think it's, that's probably a good reason to be cautious about comparing yourself to, comparing yourself to other people, right? Like, because both based on just who you are and how you were born, but also on your, how you were brought up. And like, we, we don't necessarily have control over that. And we have to work with wherever we are at any given point. Um, and so some people are good at it. Everyone can get that. The key point is everyone can get better at it. Everyone can get better at it with practice and exposure. And your basis of comparison should be where you were six months ago and not what Elliot Kipchoge was doing when he was 17 years old, at which point he was already, you know, this, this guy who's the great marathoner, 15 years ago, his first international meet, he won the world championships. Like, you know, some people are physically gifted, but also uh, mentally gifted. And that sort of is, ties into this idea of, you know, do you rise to the occasion or do you sink the level of your training? I mean, I, I do think there are some people who are better at, at you know, sinking less or rising more uh, and, and you want to try and be one of those people you want to you want to you want your best performances to be when you care most and and in in running there's a sort of concept of a a, a workout to race conversion you know like and for coaches they'll be like okay i know if i have a guy who can do five by a mile in five minutes they'll be able to run 10k in or 5k in roughly this time but the conversion is never perfect some people uh, you know, if they can do such and such a workout, they can race at a higher level. Some people that do such and such a workout and then they get into the race, it's like, dude, you're running slower than you were in the workout. What is going yes. on? Mm -hmm. And so often I think that has less to do with um, pain tolerance and more to do with handling stress, handling pressure, handling sure. expectations, both external and internal. 
And I think, you know, that's, that's maybe a bit of a different topic, but it is something that, that everyone deals with a little bit, but, you know, even just going to the gym and doing a workout, right? Like we're conscious of the people around us and what they think of us, whether they're impressed, whether they're secretly laughing behind their, you know, their our backs. And so, you know, you, you want to be able to, to the extent possible, look, the, the, you know, this stuff is, is obviously a whole can of worms, but you want to be able to focus on what you're doing and compare yourself to you, not to other people. And I think that helps people then be someone who then rises to the occasion or thinks less to their, their training because they're able to get, they're able to do what they're capable of doing instead of constricting work, you know, being in fear of, of, of what other, how others are judging them. Mm-hmm. And I think too, it comes back to, and I think you would agree too, Alex, that, and I think you wrote in your book too, is you just said, if you want to become more enduring, you got to suffer. There needs to be a point where, yes, we're talking about some of these things about you know what, what you're saying in the inner dialogue, but you also have to suffer. And we talked off air about Michael Crawley, who was on the podcast, and he spent some time out in Ethiopia. And these guys are the, some of the best runners in the world, and they train really freaking hard. And the book's called Out of Thin Air because they're training at, at elevation and they're doing you know grueling workouts twice a day. But I also think on top of it too, it comes back to motivation and how bad do you want it? I had Matt Fitzgerald on the podcast as well, who, who wrote the book, How Bad Do You Want It? He talks about, you know, yes, there there's RPE and there's all this stuff, but then that that last layer is deciding, is it worth it? How much do you, you know, not to coin the, the, the title of the book, but how bad do you actually want it? If the motivation isn't quite there, the want to push to that pain level certainly isn't going to be there. So the more we can kind of align those things up, I think the closer we'll be. And I think that goes back to the people Michael spent time with in Ethiopia. They were highly motivated. Running was their, their life, their world. And because of that, they could kind of match their pain tolerance to that. Have you kind of had any sort of research or do you have any thoughts about how motivation plays a role in diving into that next step absolutely i mean there has been endless debate over the last let's say 20 30 years as to why east african runners dominate the world yeah. why, you know and so and there's a, i think there's a lot of answers uh, there's a culture of of interest in running there's both in kenya and ethiopia where a lot of the great runners come from as you said they're growing up in thin air they're growing up in at, at altitude so that their lungs are more used to extracting oxygen or more efficient at extracting oxygen. But I think, you know, probably the biggest factor is what you just said. It's, it's motivation. If you, if you grow, are growing up in the slums of Addis Ababa or, you know, in, in, uh, you know, rural Kenya, running is an opportunity to, to completely change your life from one of, you know, maybe, and for many of them, absolute grinding poverty to middle class or, or, or higher life. And so, a lot of the runners in Kenya and Ethiopia are absolutely willing to suffer, not just on the day. There, it's one thing to be willing to suffer when you know when the race starts. So we're all willing to suffer for an hour, but they're suffering day in, day out. Uh, they're training at a level that would be unimaginable to most people in North America, um, and you know, and under conditions that are unimaginable. And so, yeah, when the when the race comes, there's a there's a famous book about Kenyan running. Uh, where the title was train hard, win easy. And I think there's some truth to that. It's like they're compared to what they've gone through to get to the start line. The race is just, Oh, sh- you want me to push as hard as I can, can for a couple hours? Sure. I'll do that. That's no problem. And, and so how does that apply in like no, normal life in North America? I'm using air quotes here. Um, I know for me, it's been, it's been interesting because I've been training pretty hard. I'm 40, like I said, I'm 45. I, I've been training pretty hard since I was, let's say 15. 
And there's an interesting thing that I noticed starting in my late 30s or mid 30s when actually, yeah, in my mid 30s, let's say when I was no longer sort of trying to be the best in the world or anything like that, is that I would run a race. And I, you know, I was still training hard, still motivated, still wanted to see as fast, see how fast I could go. And I would cross the finish line and I'd say, whew, that was hard. And then I'd walk away and I'd, within a couple of minutes, I'd, I'd feel fine. Back in my early 20s, I used to, if I, when I was running at my bi- biggest races, like let's say the national championships, I would sometimes finish the race. And that would be the end of the season, a big time to celebrate with my teammates. You know, usually you'd have a big night out and everything. And I would just be crippled for like, I wouldn't be able to sit up straight for hours. I'd be at, at the bar that night with friends just sort of sitting at a table. Everyone's dancing and I'm just sitting at the table. It's like, I can't even put my head up. I was able to go to a place that I think most of my peers couldn't go to, but and I'm proud that I could, I could go to that place sometimes. I couldn't do it very often. Um, that's motivation. That's, that's like, you want to know where my last year was. That's where my last year was. And I can't get to that year anymore. I just, the, the, I think the bottom line is I don't care enough. It's not yes. like my, my whole identity isn't wrapped up in how I do in that race. And that's for a competitive athlete, that's a fun thing to get to. For most of us, we have no need to get to that gear, but we need to realize there's probably like 16 or 17 gears between what feels hard in a workout and what's going to leave you lying on the floor. And it's fun to get into some of those gears. And I still, for me, I run, let's say six days a week, I do two hard days. And those are the most fun days for me. It's, I, I mean, they're the most painful, but it's like, yeah, I don't, you know, and sometimes maybe I'm getting to level nine and sometimes I'm getting to level 11. Sometimes, you know, it, it varies from time to time, but it's fun to see how far can I get up the ladder? How far, how, how hard can I push myself? And I think, you know, everyone's different. Everyone has different motivations. So there's no universal answer to this, but, but understanding that uh, you, you have to care about it to some degree. If you want to, if you want to get to, it's not just like, well, I guess my RPE can go to nine. It's like the difference between 9.1, 9.2, 9.25, like th- that is bigger than the difference between like three and five. Mm-hmm. And so every little bit you can push yourself to that end is, is hard and it's also rewarding and you'll get out of it what you put into it. Right. And a great reminder too, during training, I think too, and I might be just talking to myself here, Alex, uh, but I think a, a good idea to training when you're going through some of those hard times, hard feelings and pushing in that pain cave, if you will, is reminding yourself that what you're doing subconsciously is moving that ticker just a little bit more. So, you know, right now I'm on this, you know, tonight I have running intervals, Alex, and I'm not a very excited for it, but I'm going to try to switch my dialogue here as the day goes on. But what I'm going to be thinking about during it is during these uh, 800s or sorry, these 400s, what I'm going to be thinking about is I'm moving my that needle from 9.1, like you said, to 9.2. It's just a little bit. And the next time I do this, it's going to become maybe a little bit easier. And that RP is going to kind of shift. I think that's a kind of a, just a, a different mindset for people when they're in the suck or they're in the training versus being on competition day. Absolutely. And I think just to pick up on that, ever since I started, and I started writing about the central governor theory like 15 years ago. And w- one of the most common questions was like, okay, it's cool to know that your brain sets your limits, but how does this actually help us? What is the, the useful trick? And the sure. truth is, there's no like dial on the central governor that you can reset. But f- I, what I've always believed is that understanding the way the central governor works is powerful in and of itself. So understanding that when you run as, or when you push as hard as you can in whatever context, and then you reach that point where you hit that brick wall and you're like, that's all I can do. Understanding that it's not really a brick wall. Because if you, if you, if what you believe is that when your body feels like it wants to stop, that's because your body is failing and therefore it's, 
inarguable that this is just physiological reality, then you stop because you're like, oh, okay, I guess I reached my limits. But if you understand that this is my brain has determined that today this is my limit, then you're a little more willing to keep pushing. You're, you're mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm, this is this is what my brain thinks. Let's see if I could reset that limit a little bit. And then, as you said, tomorrow or next week, the brain, my brain will have been there before and it'll let me go that, that little bit farther. So I, I really do think that, again, motivational self-talk, all that stuff, these things are great, but the, the, the sort of level zero is just understanding that what feels like a limit isn't non-negotiable, that, that you, you, can, you can refuse to stop when your, your brain tries to, to, to stop you. And probably your brain, inevitably your brain will win, but it, you might be able to hold out a little longer with each, with each sort of iteration. Mm-hmm. Totally. Do you see a point in training to exhaustion or I know it's, it's kind of hard. It's hard to actually do. I think you said on a podcast once, one of the only things you can really do is kind of hold your breath and that can kind of tr- train you to be able to, that's the only thing that we need is what you said is basically is breath. And so that'll, that is one thing you could do, but would you see a point and I don't know exactly what it would look like, Alex, but maybe it, maybe it's breath control. I don't know, maybe, but what, what are your thoughts on getting yourself to train full exhaustion in order to feel what that's like? And you would probably say, well, you, you can't do that. You can't go to full exhaustion, but you, you're with me. But yeah, no, even voluntary exhaustion. Actually, there's a big debate in, in like strength training circles right now. It's like, is it, is it more useful to train till true failure till you you know even you know you cannot get the weight up one more time or is it better to stop say one rep two reps short and there have been a bunch of studies that compare uh this and, and they they reach conflicting conclusions um i think it depends a lot on the context i think if we're talking general fitness for people um and, and if we're talking from a physiological perspective i think you go to within a rep of failure or a rep or two of failure you're getting most of what you need. You're lowering your injury risk. You're making it easier. So you're lowering the psychological barrier of getting that person to, to show up at the gym next time. Uh, and so in that case, there's probably not a whole lot of uh, necessity to sort of yell at them into, you know, to, to truly pushing their limits. You're never going to win the Olympics like that, right? You're never going to get your own maximum if you don't sometimes see God, right? Like if, if you don't, push to your limits. How often you need to do that is a, is a really interesting question. And I, you know, in running, my sense was, so I would race multiple times in a given season and not even every race would be like the true all out, but there'd be a couple of workouts each year where it's like, today we're going to die today, today we're going off. So there'd be a lot of 9.6s and 9.7s and the occasional 10. Um, it depends on the sport. It depends on the person. Um, but I, I do think even just from the sort of, I don't know, call it a personal development or spiritual level or just self-knowledge, um, there, there really is nothing like reaching the point where you know you can do nothing more. And I think most people in society uh, rarely, if ever, experience that. And I think that's something pretty cool, whether you're doing, whether you're following a serious CrossFit regimen or, or racing running it that's to 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 reach that point where you're like yeah i did everything i could whatever the physiology says i think that's a pretty cool thing independent for its own sake yeah i agree i don't know if everybody would agree but i would agree to that <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or what i mean by that is easier said than done sure sure and it's it's definitely not something i managed to achieve every saturday morning or anything like that. <laughs> but just every once in a while to know that yep that's that's all i had 
it's uh, right. I, I like to make sure that I, I I feel that feeling every once in a while. Yeah, I think that's good for the mind and the body and the soul as well. So uh, I just want to close with one more topic here, and that's talking about some of the more limits. And I'll let you kind of choose one here, but I thought some of the very interesting ones were the the fuel and the thirst and the heat. If you want to either touch on all three quickly or just pick one, can we talk a little bit about why those are also limits other than uh, uh, on top of pain? Sure. I mean, I guess there's there's some big themes that unite those. Uh, the, the 20th century view of physiology was like the body is like a car. And in the same way that if your radiator boils over in the car or whatever, I mean, cars still have radiators, but, um, you know, like if the, if the temperature of your engine, uh, which actually happened to me this summer, but that's another story, uh, in uh, my car in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, oh, no. your, your body, the, the plumbing of your body will not function effectively if you're too dehydrated, if you don't have enough fuel, just like if the gas, the gas tank of your car is empty. Like all these things are, are very intuitive and we understand why you can't be too hot or too dehydrated or too out of fuel. The, the common theme between those three things that at least in, in, in what I came across when I was researching the book is that the body never truly runs out of gas. And for the most part, it's not, it's, it's, uh, doesn't actually boil its blood or anything like that that in all three cases, we have very strong warning systems that try to get us to stop before we reach any sort of catastrophe. And those warning systems are maybe even more cautious than they need to be. So dehydration for, for one, um, like if you get thirsty, then in, in, you know, if you don't drink for seven days or three days, you will die. But if you get thirsty during a workout, you will not die. And in fact, by any measurable definition, unless the workout is like in a really hot room and lasting a long time, it won't even affect your performance. You might feel mm -hmm. thirsty. Then after the workout's done, you'll drink and then you won't be thirsty anymore. It's like, okay, no problem. So, you know, that's, that's, so the feeling of thirst does not mean your performance is compromised as long as you are, are able to sort of drink reasonably soon afterwards. If you're out there for three hours, then yeah, you know, or even two hours at a heavy sweat rate, you should probably drink something when you're thirsty, but you don't need to replace all your fluids or anything like that. This idea that anytime you sweat, you're, you know, you're on the road to, to, to performance ruin that I, I don't think is, is, uh, is true. And this the same is true with, with fuel and, and, uh, just to some extent, and even with heating that, yeah, you get hot, um, you, you're not in danger, but you'll, you'll have this sensation of wanting to slow down. And that's the first stage of the central governor saying, we detect that things are warming up. To make sure this doesn't get out of hand, we're going to start make, you're making your effort feel a little bit harder. And so we have these all these systems that I think do it pretty well. And I, I guess the reason you know hydration is super controversial, of course, and, and has been you know CrossFit has actually been a big player in that debate. But uh, you know, like I have two young kids, five and seven years old right now. It's like they have to have a full water bottle every day, and this like panic. It's like, and when I was a kid, yeah. I like, wouldn't bring water bottles to school. Like no, like. If we got thirsty, we went to the drinking fountain and, and had a few sips of water. So right. I, I think, I think there's something to be said for not not to say that these things aren't important. Eating and drinking are important, but listening to the body and understanding that we have a whole a, a whole layer, uh, multiple layers of warning systems that will warn us if we are getting too hot or too thirsty or too hungry. 
Right. Super fascinating. I think what I, what I would say is that hydration is very important, but maybe not when you're actually in the workout. And I'm not saying you shouldn't drink water, but it's funny because in CrossFit, I remember when I first started CrossFit, I came from kind of the bodybuilding world, just your typical, you know, lifetime fitness, chest buys, whatever. And, and there's a lot of w- water drinking between sets there because you're kind of sitting and whatever. So I kind of took that into my CrossFit journey. And I remember in, in between a 10 to 20 minute AMRAP, you know, gra- going and grabbing water and kind of getting made fun of because it's like, that's not really what we do here. Like you don't, you don't need to, you know, cause we're concerned about getting the most reps as we can in, in a certain, a lot of time waste You're wasting time going over to the waterfall. So it kind of makes me laugh when I think about that, because now as a coach, I see it all the time with new members that stop and get a, a water drink. And I'm thinking to myself, like, did you really, did you really need that? Or was just your brain telling you, or also could it be just like, you're looking for a way to like slow down and stop because you want to drink some water. Yeah. And it's a cultural thing too. It's like yeah. we, 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 people, you know, people carry water bottles with them everywhere. And it's, it's not like a terrible thing, but it's just like, are you drinking? Cause it's a behavioral tick. Or are you drinking? Cause you're like, Oh my God, I'm so thirsty. And you know, it look, it, it, it's a controversial thing. And I'm sure. <laughs> Hopefully, in the, within the CrossFit world, the people who are listening to this, no one's going to get too upset about it. But people, people do get worked up if you're like, yeah, you know, you don't need to drink every five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's funny, man. Uh, also, well, last question here. I'm very curious. Knowing what you know now about all the endurance research that you've done, if you were to go back to your 15, 18, you know, kind of in your prime, if you will, what are some things that you would do differently? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'll, I look back at the trajectory of my career and there's lots of things where i'm like oh i wish i had you know increased my mileage more gradually or did this or did that and then i think back and I'm like honestly did i not know that when i was 19 actually i did know that it's like mm-hmm. knowing things and executing them sometimes are, are different so to that note i mean the one thing i would go back with the time machine uh, is to be is to tell my younger self to work with a sports psychologist and I think I mentioned earlier, like in college, we had a sports psychologist working with the team and we just thought it was such a joke. We didn't take it seriously. And I look back at some of the things that I do remember from those sessions and it's like, man, that's pretty much exactly what I just wrote in my book as this you know, wonderful new breakthrough, things like yeah. motivational self-talk. And it's like, they were telling me that 20 years ago. And of course they didn't have the evidence at that point. So I, for a skeptical guy like me, I just, I wasn't hearing it. But honestly, it would be like, Think about psychological preparation, not as a sort of frill, but as something that's part of the, specifically for competition, especially is psychological preparation is a skill. You can get better at it. And some, you know, I was sometimes pretty good at it and sometimes not, but rather than leaving it to chance, if you work at it, you get better at it. And so I would have worked harder on the psychological preparation aspect. Very cool. I love it. Uh, Alex, I want to give you the floor. If uh, I can point my listeners to anything that you're doing, any projects, obviously the book, uh, where can I point them to? Yeah, uh, the, the next book is due out in uh, 2032. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the right things are going. But uh, yeah, the best place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is, is Sweat Science, all one word. And, and so I'm a, I'm a regular columnist with Outside Magazine. I have uh, five columns a month there, and I write a few other places too. But anytime I have a new article, uh, which is mostly on uh, the, the science and psychology of science and, uh, or of endurance performance, uh, you'll, you'll see it uh, on Twitter at Sweat Science. Cool. Alex, I appreciate you taking the time, man. You're an incredible writer, uh, just a brilliant person. You can do, you do a great job just explaining all the stuff that is very like sciencey, but also stuff that I think everybody can kind of grab onto. And I think that's really important and just a kind of a characteristic that's very admirable. So again, thanks for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, DJ. And I really enjoyed the conversation.
Awesome. Guys, we'll see you next week for another episode on the My Fit Podcast. Take care.